0: It is raining like crazy. I guess it would classify as torrential downpour. And I just heard there's a tornado warning. I'm wondering if maybe I shouldn't do this. Welcome to the adventure. We're off to Jamaica Bay. This is Adrift NYC. My name is Kathy Boyle Almeida. For those of you who are new here, I'm exploring 30 bodies of water that touch New York City. Yep, I've mapped out 30 waterways to visit. And each week, I'm going to take you with me to one of these marine environments and share conversations that I'm having with historians and scientists about these places and talented folks who are inspired by these waterways to create incredible things. Okay, it's time for destination number two, Jamaica Bay. For those of you who don't know Jamaica Bay, it touches the shores of Queens and Brooklyn. In fact, some of the islands in the bay are considered part of Queens, and some are part of Brooklyn. The two boroughs split the bay down the middle. JFK Airport also neighbors the bay, and anyone who's flown into or out of that airport has flown over the bay. The day I visited Jamaica Bay for the first time wasn't exactly the best day weather-wise, but I'm so glad that I didn't let that stop me because I learned a lot about the Bay.
1: It's the, the greatest natural resource lying within the boundaries of any city in the country.
2: The richness of marine life in Jamaica Bay is, is pretty remarkable, as it
0: is for the terrestrial life.
3: If the sun is shining, it's glowing, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable.
0: Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, you'll hear from these three folks, plus a little bit about my discovery of the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge. So this trip was the first time I had ever been to this body of water. I had seen it hundreds of times when I either flew in or out of JFK Airport, and I had probably driven over it quite a few times, too. But I had never taken the time to visit it specifically. And to be honest, folks, I had never given it much thought, aside from when maybe it made the news, which... Really, sadly, was typically not for good reasons. Plane crashes and storm damage are the types of news stories that I heard about Jamaica Bay, In I wanted to know more than the headline news, so I started way back at the beginning. I read this paper that was written by a professor of history at Long Island University. His name was Frederick Black, and he pointed out how Dutch settlers arrived to the Jamaica Bay area in the 17th and 18th centuries, and they arrived by land, not water. But those Dutch settlers were not the first human inhabitants of the area. According to Professor Black, the Canarsie Indians had established quite a few important villages near the bay. The Dutch bought the land from those Indians, and then they built settlements of their own, one of which was Gowanus. Now, fast forward a lot of years, and then the British took over the bay area. They conquered the Dutch, and they held that area until the end of the Revolutionary War. With this foundational info under my belt, I sought out a lifelong resident of the Bay in order to learn about the history of the Bay from someone who had lived it firsthand. I reached out to Dan Mundy, and you're going to love this guy. He's chock full of local knowledge, and he lives smack dab in the middle of the Bay on Broad Channel Island, which, by the way, is the only inhabited island on the Bay. So let's chat with Dan, shall we? Hey, Dan, to start out, can you tell us a little bit
1: about yourself? Yeah. So uh, my name is Dan Mundy. I'm the president of the Broad Channel Civic Association, which sort of represents, you know, all the homeowners on this island. And I'm the vice president of the Jamaica Bay Eco Watches, which is an environmental group established uh, over 20 years ago to try and preserve and protect the bay. I've lived here in Broad Channel for 56 years, my whole life, as has my, you know, my family, uh, extended family. And I'm currently Battalion Chief of the New York City Fire Department, still working after 35 years.
0: Dan, when you think about the history of the Bay, and I mean beyond the arrival of the Dutch and then the British, what events do you think have had the biggest impact on the Bay?
1: The uh, railroad that came down here. To meet the demand of people who wanted to go to Rockaway Beach in the late 1800s, I, it seemed to me to have one of the biggest impacts. So Broad Channel was a station on the railroad, and there was two neighborhoods north of Broad Channel that are now gone that also had big train station stops, and then sprung up some you know very big, large structures, uh, halls that were uh, dance halls and um, hotels, supporting people who you know maybe didn't want to go to Rockaway, wanted to stay here and do fishing, you know, and uh, getting out on the bay. And then, you know, development in a sense all around the Bay, including like the dredging, you know, because, you know, when you look at the maps of the Bay and you look at the photos and, and particularly the aerial overlays, the New York City do it map. Is a great resource because it actually. Now
0: listeners, let me a jump in here for a minute to help describe uh, the aerial maps that Dan just mentioned because thing. they're really fascinating. They were created by the New York City Department of Information Technology and Telecommunications, which is known as DO IT for short. If you go to their website, you're going to see aerial views of New York City from as far back as 1924 all the way up to 2012. I'll put a link to the Do It website in the show notes, and I really – I highly recommend you check it out because if you zoom in on Jamaica Bay and then click through the years like 1924, 51, 96, 2006, all the way up to 2012, you're going to see how much the bay has changed. Way back in 1924, there was a lot more marshland and far less bay itself, so far less water clearly there's a lot more water than land. So what was the point of trying to turn this into a bigger bay?
1: If you follow the history early on, it was used for you know, recreation and, and, and individual fishing places sprung up. But there was a master plan at the turn of the century uh, in the early 1900s to make this into a huge port. And some of this dredging was done towards that end. It did not materialize. But the idea that was that they were going to create a, a large port that was actually going to have canals uh, going all the way up into like areas like Flushing. It would be an area where... Mm. Commerce would come in. It would be wharfs and piers and bulkhead lines and totally about bringing in trade and goods and then being able to ship them through either rail or canals. So it was a pretty big plan and uh, had a lot of thought that went into it. It didn't materialize, thank God for us, uh, because, you know, here we are here, the island of Broad Channel. We wouldn't have been. The ultimate impact was that the North Channel was dredged. That's this channel here.
0: I'm going to jump in again to put North Channel in perspective for you. Think of it, if you know that area, as the part of the bay that laps against the shores of Canarsie, East New York, and Howard Beach.
1: There's there's areas here that we dive in within the bay that are 65 feet deep. There were some people who looked at the dredging and said, you know, oh, this is, this is a bad thing. And there was aspects of the dredging that were harmful, but it is what it is. It happened. And now we you know, we, the stakeholders, uh, sometimes think it's a little bit lost with the quick scientific glance at it that, oh, it was a harmful and horrible practice. The positives that came out of it, and there are a lot of positives, the amount of massive marine life that's in the bay now because of these, these deep areas. Two weeks ago, I had taken my boat, and I was straight out here about a half a mile, On one of the islands, there were seals all over the island, which has become a bit of a common sight with the waters cleaning up. And right now, as we're sitting here, this is low tide, but fish are moving in, and we see them... When it's calm at night, you see the bunker in the Manhattan starting to break and the striped bass will fill in and follow them along with bluefish. It'll be a massive migration all the way into the back of the bay back here.
0: And can I just ask, we're looking at 1951. <clears throat> yep. If we were to bring this to present day, are, is there more water than there was even then or are we? So
1: we've lost a lot of the wetland islands, dozens and dozens, hundreds of acres of wetlands. Some of it was because the bulkheads were created and the shoreline. But in the center of the islands, the center islands of the bay, we were losing 44 acres a year. Something was going on. And we didn't know what it was, but it needed to be found out because it was killing the wetlands. What we found out later was that New York City was the last major municipality that was still taking the byproduct of um, sewage systems, which is waste, (laughs) disgusting sludge, they call it, and dumping it out in the ocean. They were forced to stop that in 1995 they came up with a system of machines that would spin the water out of the waste and then they would do this process where the waste actually becomes fertilizer out west, believe it or not. (laughs) But it sounded like a good fix to meet the federal mandate and Clean Water Act and everything else. But the byproduct of that process created a system where the nitrogen loading going into the bay overnight went from 18,000 pounds, which was the average and what we were seeing every day, to 55,000 pounds every day. It also created a water quality that Jamaica Bay is not the, you know, the Bahamas. But when you live down here, you're sort of used to the certain level of clarity. And we were getting this rust-brown water. And we kept saying, what changed? Like, literally within a season. We brought in scientists from all over. We brought them out there. A lot of them said, you know, you're probably going to not like what I say because I'm probably not going to agree with you. And we said, that's fine. We want you guys to come out, but we want you to come out in a boat and see it. And then afterwards, we all brought them back to a boat club. There was about 20 of them in uh, different, different fields all based around marine science, marine biology. We asked them, what do you think? And to a person, they said, you got a big problem going on. Something is happening in this bay. We published sort of results of this through the media, like, look, at this is a bad thing. The National Park Service then said, we're going to hold a blue ribbon panel. They did the same thing, and they got the same results. So that was around 2001. There was this about eight year battle of going back and forth and trying to negotiate a settlement to make the city spend the money to upgrade the plants. We ended up with an agreement. In monetary terms, it was roughly $100 million in upgrades. And it wasn't about the money. It was that we knew that the money at a certain level would bring down the nitrogen based on what we had looked into in terms of what was available in terms of techniques. And then they parked an extra $15 million to do um, marsh restoration. Fast forward, that was one of the biggest pivotal turns that we talk about in Jamaica Bay. It was the first time that we really went after these plants. There's four of them around the bay. They put 250 million gallons of water a day into the bay, and they were having this huge, tremendous negative effect, and we were able to not only, you know, get it, that addressed. We got $15 million, which is created in our wetland islands, but it also really got the mayor at the time... Into Jamaica Bay because as we went in there, we argued, you know, we would say, you know, you're all focused on Central Park and it's beautiful. This is 25 times the size of Central Park, Jamaica Bay. You know, one third of every bird species in North America has been sighted here, you know. So I think some of this started to trickle back because a couple of years later, two years later, when the mayor created the Science and the Science Resiliency Institute at Jamaica Bay, you know, he made these uh, types of statements. And in fact, he went so far as to say, that it's the, the greatest natural resource lying within the boundaries of any city in the country, which is, when I think about it, probably accurate and certainly um, shows, I think, a deep sign of what he thought this bay holds in terms of value.
0: Dan was such a pleasure and such a wealth of knowledge about Jamaica Bay. I'm going to post a few pics of him and the beautiful view that he has from his living room in the show notes so you can get to know him a little bit. I'll also put those on Instagram. From Dan's house, I drove to Long Beach to chat with William Kornblum, a native New Yorker, self-taught sailor, urban sociologist, and an author of At Sea and the City. Bill and his family spent decades exploring the waterways of New York City in his ancient cat boat, which he called Tradition. We had a great time chatting about sailing, which he did without a lot of experience, in the waters around New York City, and what motivated him to dedicate an entire chapter to his time on Jamaica Bay. But before we get into what it's like to sail on the surface of the bay, I want you to hear what it's like underwater. And who better to tell us that than a marine biologist? Professor Liz Alter kindly took time away from her research to speak with me about what's happening beneath the waves of the bay. Let's take a listen. Hey, Liz, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. To start out, could you give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself and what you're researching? Sure. My name is Liz Alter, and I'm a
2: marine biologist. I'm a professor at York College of the City University of New York, and my specialty is environmental and ecological genomics. So I study how both species and ecosystems evolve using the tools of genetics, and my Specific focus within New York is on environmental DNA. So, using DNA that is shed by organisms into the environment to understand what's there, and in some cases, how many are there. And then also trying to understand how species adapt to extreme environments, including the kinds of urban environments that we find around New York. And
0: what drew your attention to Jamaica Bay?
2: I first learned about it when I was flying into JFK Airport and noticed this beautiful marshland underneath me and wondered what that was. Once I started to look into it a little bit more, I was pretty amazed to find that, you know, a lot of New Yorkers don't know that it's there. Even when they are flying in and out of JFK, they might not notice it necessarily. But it's really a pretty incredible ecosystem. So it's a, it's a wetland estuary and a salt marsh. And it's one of the largest that we have here in New York State. And it's this incredibly complex kind of network of both salt marsh, open water, grasslands, meadowlands, coastal woodlands and shrubs. It's a pretty incredible resource to have for both you know, recreation and fishing
0: and all kinds of other activities pretty close to the city. And can you give us a sense of the health of Jamaica Bay like compared to five or 10 years ago? Health is a kind of a loaded
2: word and really depends on what we take as a baseline, right? So whether or not we consider the bay "quote unquote healthy today depends on what we're using as that baseline. But if we go back to the very, you know, the very beginning of the history of Jamaica Bay, recorded history, certainly it's been a highly productive estuary, you know, for millennia and after European colonization remained one of New York City's most important centers of fishing and shellfish harvesting, in particular oysters, with incredible productivity and marine diversity through the turn of the century. But then with all the increased development that started happening around the Bay, by 1916 the pollution was bad enough that a lot of those shellfishing industries had to close. The Clean Water Act of 1972 helped a lot to make dumping and pollution illegal, and that helped to really revive the Bay throughout the 70s and 80s. And in 1972, it also became part of the Gateway National Recreation Area, so a federally protected designation. So pollution today is much, much better than it was in the past, but we still have the problem of both legacy pollutants like heavy metals and other contaminants that stick around in the sediment from previous industrial dumping, and then ongoing pollution through sewage and urban runoff. And listeners might be aware of the problem that the city has with CSOs or combined sewer overflows. So those continue to be a big issue for Jamaica Bay as well. And Liz, is that something that's
0: closely monitored? Yes, it is
2: closely monitored. And there's uh, New York Department of Environmental Conservation has a and Department of Environmental Protection both have plans in place to help improve water quality year by year.
0: How is the marine life in the Bay changing? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the richness of marine life in Jamaica Bay is
2: is pretty remarkable, as it is for the terrestrial life. So Jamaica Bay is probably most famous for all the birds that use it, more than 320, 330 species of birds in particular because it sits along the Atlantic coastal flyway migration route but if you go underwater then you'll see that it's also a very diverse place for fish species for invertebrate species as a fish biologist, one of my favorite species, is the mummachog. It's one that doesn't get a lot of love because you're not likely to see them unless you have a minnow trap or you're really looking closely around the, the base of um, salt grass. They like to hide in debris and plant roots, but they're pretty special. They're some of the toughest fish on the planet. They can survive in either fully freshwater or full-strength seawater, so they, they are very happy living in estuaries where you have this confluence of salt and freshwater. water. They also live up and down the eastern seaboard, so they can withstand temperatures from Nova Scotia down to Florida. So, you know, just about freezing up to about 93 degrees Fahrenheit. And they don't mind low oxygen. They can live out of water for even even for short periods. And then finally, and probably most usefully for living in Jamaica Bay, there are lots of populations of mummichogs that are resistant to some of the most toxic pollutants out there, so including heavy metals, PCBs, and PAHs. So they're really tough, incredibly tough fish, and they provide important food source for a lot of the bigger fish that people eat, such as winter flounder.
0: Liz, I'm wondering, what's the spectrum of marine life like in the Bay?
2: The ones that are best known are the the most visible ones, are the ones that are important for fishing. So, fishermen in Jamaica Bay really know it for striped bass and bluefish and fluke, and then the things that those species eat, like minhaden, which is also called bunker, silversides, the mummachog, so all these are important forage fishes for these other species that are actually targeted by fishermen. And then there's lots of amazing invertebrates as well. One highly visible one that you will you know, have an excellent chance of seeing if you go to the bay and just sort of look around the water's edge are horseshoe
0: crabs. Thank you so much, Liz. That was really fascinating. And, it, and it's really great to hear that so many fish are thriving in the bay. Let's take a quick break. And after, we'll hear firsthand what it's like to sail on Jamaica Bay and spend the night on the water. Welcome back, everyone. It's almost story time. I'm here with author William Kornblum, who wrote the fascinating book, At Sea in the City. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his adventures sailing with his family around New York's many waterways on his sailboat tradition. And he's going to treat us to a reading of one of his favorite chapters in the book, and which happens to be one of his favorite memories, the night he spent alone on Jamaica Bay. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book?
3: I did a lot of research with the National Park Service. They hired me in the early 70s to do research on national parks in metropolitan regions. And so they sent me to lots of different regions of the United States to do research related to the needs of the Park Service, social research, how many people were coming and what they were doing and where there was conflict and what their interactions were with nature, you know, all kinds of things like that. I spent a lot of time in meetings and I said to myself, you know, I really would like to be able to explore these places from the ocean and the sea, from the, the shore. I'd like to get a boat. And I'd like to go around to these places that I'm hearing about and seeing from the parking lots and the, you know, the, uh, the, the meeting rooms. And I'd like to see what they're like. And so in 1979, I got an old sailboat and my son and I, Noah, put it together. It had been laying in a guy's backyard. It turned out to be a kind of historic boat. It had been, been first built in 1910 and its name was tradition. It was a cat boat, which is a, beautiful old New England style boat with one mast and a gaff rig sail. We got it going and it took us quite a number of years but <laughs> before we learned how to use it. It became kind of our personal and family research vessel, you could say. And eventually we got to be able to sail up into New York Harbor and explore the, start to explore the waterways of Jamaica Bay.
0: Bill, I'm really curious. What's it like to experience Jamaica Bay and the waters around New York from the land, which you did for so long, and then again from being on the water? How does the perspective differ?
3: That's a great question. You know, you get these different perspectives of the city that you would never get unless you were on this little boat out there. When you come up from the south along the Jersey Shore and you come past Sandy Hook. You're starting to come into the mouth of the, the open mouth of the harbor. When you look to the north, there's Manhattan without any islands or any interference. It's like it's a big ship sitting in the ocean, in an ocean of its own. And if the sun is shining, it's glowing, you know, and, there, and it's, it's, it's unbelievable. There's no, there's no land around it. It's just the city. It's sticking up. It's a fantastic sight.
0: I don't know what section of, the bo- of your chapter about Jamaica Bay you're going to read, but could you just describe to me what it's like? I think you spent the night there. That's
3: what I want to read. Oh, perfect. I went for three days of solitude without dogs, children, friends, or spouse. Early in the morning, I guided tradition on a flooding tide once again under the Gil Hodges Memorial Bridge, also known as the Marine Parkway Bridge. On the way into the bay's interior, I stopped to do some fishing along the edges of the channels. In almost no time, I landed two porgies, and then, after some annoying oaths to and from a croaking sea robin, I caught a nice summer flounder, a fluke, a keeper. On a glorious run downwind, and with tradition's boom paid out against the almost perpendicular to the beam, I sailed for hours on a light southwest wind through different channels and creeks and ended my sail in the north channel beyond Canarsie and into the green corridors of Pumpkin Patch Channel. When the channel narrowed, I rounded upwind to slow down and soon came in sight of the west pond of the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge. Tradition swayed at anchor in one of the many quiet and somewhat hidden pools in the lush marsh while I lolled on deck and wrote an entry in her logbook the spot I chose afforded a good binocular view of bird activity on the pond, but hid the boat from direct view of Broad Channel Village and the traffic on Cross Bay Boulevard. This anchorage was only a few hundred yards from the nearest convenience store and about half a mile from the subway stop on Broad Channel Island. Surrounded by the marshes and the narrow creeks that fed into Pumpkin Patch Channel, it seemed that the boat and I were alone on a sea of marsh grass under an infinitely curving bowl of fair sky. It was still May. The breeze carried the chill air of a colder ocean. Later, I prepared the fish for dinner, along with some small red potatoes, all of which grilled quickly on the boat's outdoor charcoal cooker. After dinner and a half hour before sunset, I went exploring in the inflatable dinghy in narrow, horse channel between stony marsh and yellow bar. These are all places in Jamaica Bay and all these, all these hummocks and marshy places. I was hoping for a chance meeting with some shorebirds, but I had no immediate luck. My eyes were not yet accustomed to the marsh. So I rode for a while away from tradition, her anchor light already swinging aloft, and away from the wildlife refuge further into the marsh towards the setting sun. And sure enough, as I was drifting, I noticed a rustle in the marsh grass. A clapper rail on stealthy feet was stalking evening mud bugs. Like most of the rails, close cousins to ducks, the clapper rail is most handsome with a long and straight beak set perfectly below a head that sweeps imperceptibly into a gracefully curving neck and then down into a strong shoulder's. Much loved by birders and hunters, the rails hunt fiddler crabs along the sandy edges of the marsh and in the looming darkness of the salt streams up the grasses. There was another brief flutter of wings above my head and I looked up in time to get a long view of a soaring pair of glossy ibis. They are delicate gliders with jet black bodies and raptor curved beaks. Along with the osprey and peregrine falcons, They were almost erased from the bay earlier in the century. Their dying eggs made paper-thin from DDT, mosquito spraying. Now, under the watchful eyes of birders and the federal rangers, who won't permit indiscriminate spraying, they are flourishing again and are among the bay's most cherished birds, here in Jamaica Bay, a Pax environmentalis of federal protection and regulations spreads even to the insects that these birds must feed on.
0: That's it. Wonderful. Thank you. It's hard to imagine that that's New York City. It is. I
3: really appreciate it. Thank that. you for giving me the opportunity to read that.
0: Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's adventure. I hope you all got as much out of this as I did. And if you take one thing away from this episode, I hope it's this go visit Jamaica Bay. It's truly a beautiful spot. And if you're not sure how to get there, you can take the A train to the Broad Channel stop. If you prefer to drive, check out the show notes for directions. Big thanks to Dan Mundy, Liz Alter, and William Kornblum for taking the time to speak with me. And as always, thanks to Mary Jean Stead for composing and performing our lovely theme song. If you would like to connect with other Adrift NYC listeners or get in touch, follow me on Instagram, at Adrift NYC. And if you think Adrift NYC will resonate with any of your friends, please share it so we have more people out there taking notice of and appreciating the city's waterways, just like we do. I'm going to leave you today with a little snippet of my visit to Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next week, make waves, everyone. So here I am at the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge. I see a lot of birds, birdhouses, birds' nests. Really very pretty here. Very peaceful. Don't feel like I'm in New York City, uh, but I definitely am. From the Titsi Project.